Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. On today's episode, we'll talk first with reporter Jessica Williams about the most recent boil water advisory coming from City Hall and whether we have to pay attention to these things. Next, we'll talk with Metro editor Jerry DiColo about Tipitina's owner Roland von Kernatowski, who is accused in lawsuits of bilking investors about the possible sale of the historic music club. And last, food writer Ian McNulty will swing by to talk about the rebirth of Deutsch's house on Bayou St. John and the plans Saints fans are making for Thanksgiving when the team will face the Falcons in a nationally televised game. Jessica Williams, who covers City Hall for The Advocate, joins us first. Jessica, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So, Jessica, let's start with what happened on Saturday morning when we had a boil water advisory. Um, What what led to this being announced? Uh, Well, one of the the reasons why this happened, or the main reason why this happened, um, is because the Sewage and Water Board relied on energy as a first line of defense. Um, energy, the company. Energy, is. the company. Yeah. Um, and the, what the Sewage and Water Board would typically do was rely on its 60-cycle turbine. Its own house-generated stuff. Its own, generated its own stuff. house-generated turbine. But because the temperature <laughs> over the weekend uh, was less than 45 degrees, it had to keep that turbine sidelined. And so essentially, while it would bring in energy as a backup, it was relying on an energy power line as its sort of first uh, source, um, energy power line above the ground, right? Mm-hmm. These are what um, agency officials from long ago who wanted to argue to keep the power in-house, um, you know, argued as a positive about the Sewage and Water Board's own turbines. But so it's underground. underground. You didn't have to worry about issues of power outages or any such from problems high winds. with energies from high winds. Um, and so, but because the... $31 million turbine um, is apparently not designed for all weather conditions. Uh, we relied on energy first. Energy's pole was compromised in some way. We still didn't, we still don't quite know exactly what happened there. Um, and when that happened, the agencies or the sewage and water boards uh, pump um, lost power. The sewage and water board then had to reroute power from another energy source through its Panola Street station from its Claiborne station but in the process of doing that, uh, a breaker uh, tripped at the Claiborne station and another pump went offline. Okay, so, now so we've kind got, of a cataclysm right. of errors. Okay. So now we've got two pumps offline. Um, and meanwhile, we've got um, this brand new water tower, um, the combined project of about $80 million. One of them's in service, and it just went into service this past week. And this water tower is essentially, you know, like this huge tank in the air that holds, you know, up to 2 million gallons of water. With the idea that if you flip, you know, it flips the switch and it lets more water into the system to stabilize the pressure. When the pressure's when falling, the pressure this falls. thing can boost it. Okay. And they're therefore negating the need for a boil water advisory before whenever uh, needs to happen, which is when the pressure falls below that 20 uh, PSI. Um, so that brand new system worked as intended, but because, <laughs> because the sewage and water board had um, so many problems, um, they had... The cold weather issue, which put the turbine out of service, they had the energy failure, and then they had an operator error. Error, And we're hearing from WWL, um, who's talked to a source that says that only one employee qualified to operate the pumps, was running back and forth between two stations dealing with two different issues at the time. Uh, of the operator error. No, the sewage and water board is saying that's not true? or The sewage and water board is saying that's not true, that okay. there were multiple uh, p- 
people who were there and could deal with the situation. However, WWL is standing by its story and saying that the one person that was qualified to do this, he uh-huh. may have had other crews there, but there was one person for one job, uh-huh. uh, could not do his job because he had to go uh, back and forth between two uh, different buildings. And this speaks to the long-term you know, staffing issues that the Sewage and Water Board has had. And we saw that most recently with the drainage system and the problems affecting that different from the water system, but still across the agency, uh-huh. uh, an issue and a problem of them not being able to find uh, qualified employees, enough qualified employees to do the work. Now, let me back up for a second. So how did, we're just finding out, right, that this, that we had this turbine that could only operate down to 45 degrees. Doesn't that seem like kind of a big problem? I mean, 45 degrees is not exactly, it's cold for New Orleans, but it's not exactly extreme conditions. It's not exactly extreme conditions, no, and and I'm not sure that I had heard publicly that this was an issue until today. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when when the agency uh, new di- executive director, when he Gasan uh, Corbin got up and started speaking about the turbine, he said, "Well, obviously, we're going to look at hardening up that turbine to where it's you know an all weather turbine. Put some not, insulation on it or something. <laughs> put a little jacket not, on it. You know, just able to be used on the 45 degree weather mark. Uh, but this is a brand new turbine. It's wow. only been in service for I two mean, years. Okay. Uh, and you know we can't use it when it's cold. And granted, it's not cold in New Orleans often. But, but when I mean, it is cold, you want to be able to use your turbine. Yeah, and it hits 45 degrees fairly regularly. I mean, at least I don't know. I'd have to guess 20 20 times a year probably. Um, let's another question with these things is so the reason that we have boil water advisories just to be clear is that when the pressure gets too low that allows bad things like bacteria diseases and whatnot to get into the into the system potentially right because we have leaky pipes and mm-hmm. and the pressure kind of emanating outward from the pipes keeps those things from getting in but when that doesn't happen the bad things can come in essentially right right and that's a state department of health guideline. And so, and that guideline changed recently, right? So the guideline used to be uh, 15 PSI, pounds per square inch, in other words. And now, as of August, it's 20. Now it's 20, yes. Do we know whether the whether the PSI got below 15 or down to 15 in, in this some, event? In some areas of the city, the PSI was as low as 7. Oh, that's pretty low. Um, and so that was when they realized that they needed to put out the boil water advisory, even though, according to them, they were able to get water pressure stabilized shortly after the advisory went out. Um, but because it requires a 24-hour testing period, and incubation period, um, the, wall, the boil water advisory was not lifted until the following day Okay. at about 10 o'clock Sunday morning. And then the other question I always have with these things, partly because I, truth, full disclosure here, I don't really pay attention to them in my own personal life, um, does, has, does the city have any reports of anyone getting sick from one of these things? And we've had we've had at least a dozen of these things in the last few years. Has anyone ever reported getting some kind of illness from this? Uh, Gassan Corbin was asked that question just today and, you know, relying on the folks who had been around for, for a lot longer than he has, he was able to say uh, with confidence, no, he hadn't heard of anything. His staff hadn't heard of anything in which a person got sick from one of these things. Um, and if you looked at the timeline that they put out today, it was really only, um, I guess, a two-hour sort of event. Mm-hmm. Um, the water pressure was very low in some places, but across the system, they were able to get it back up to that threshold shortly after the boil water the boil water advisory went out. Um, and so the danger zone would only be, would be very that very small, short, okay, in that very short window of uh-huh. time. And then. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you is you mentioned the water tower project and there's going to be a second water tower or one's in the process of being built. Right. And, and so when that is on, when that's online, will that, it, 
that would make an event like this less likely, I guess, although perhaps not impossible. It would make it less likely, um, particularly because it's coming online in April. So if we have less cold weather in April, <laughs> but also because uh, each uh, water tower officials estimate that it gives crews an extra 20 minutes of time uh, to go ahead and fix whatever problem it is, be it a power outage or a line break. Um, and having both water towers online would give crews almost an hour to do that. And in this case, they had a series of other problems that made it take longer than the 20 minutes they had. But if they had 40 minutes, even in this case, they would have been okay. They probably. would have been okay yeah. to do it. Um, okay. All right. Well, that, uh, that helps me to understand it. Um, thanks for joining me, Jessica. Thanks for having me. All right. All right, next we're joined by Jerry DiColo, the Advocates Metro editor. Jerry, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Gordon. Of course. Uh, Jerry, you've been following this story about Roland von Kernitowski, the guy who owns Tipitina's pretty closely. Tell us what's going on with that. Yeah, so what uh, we've uncovered recently is that there were a series of lawsuits against Roland von Kernitowski that have occurred over the past few months. And they contain some pretty serious allegations related to an investment fund that he appeared to have been running, uh, where uh, some of his investors in this fund that was supposed to be investing in U.S. Treasury bonds, which are typically considered fairly safe investments. Among the safest. Among the safest. um, They're alleging that they're not able to pull their money out of the fund. And essentially, over the past several months, and I think in some cases at least a year, they've been asking Roland to give them hit their money back and he hasn't been able to provide it. And they say that he's told them that uh, the money's tied up in real estate and so forth and their money isn't gone, but that that he, he it's not liquid right now or he's not able to make it liquid. That's right. And that, that raises a lot of questions because one of the things that were contained in the lawsuits are some statements uh, related to what he said he was going to be investing in. And um, I've actually covered a couple of these things before where um, I covered MF Global, which was a big, uh, which was a big kind of failure of a bigger brokerage firm, and there was a couple of others there. And what you always kind of see is these people provide documents, say we're going to be investing in this, or we're going to be doing this with your money, and if they're not, um, if they invested in something else, um, that raises a lot of questions with regulators, with securities laws, and right now it looks like that's at least what some of the people. In these lawsuits are alleging that well, he, one of one of the lawsuits has accused him of running a Ponzi scheme, which is, of course, a, a scheme where you uh, early investors uh, get paid returns on the back sort of of later investors. But eventually the, the money kind of runs out or that's right. Um, and, and we have we haven't there's nothing that we've uncovered yet. Um, you know, the lawsuits are still in process. Um, but what it is showing is that, you know, at this point, we've heard from a number of investors. I mean, I've heard from some. You've, you've spoken to yeah. some as well, Gordon. Um, and, you know, these are these are often cases. And the reason that they're a little harrowing is because typically when people are investing in these things and they go bad, um, it's people that are you know, relying on these for their retirement. I think right. you talked to, was it someone whose mother or grandmother had been kind of relying on this? Yeah, or? actually, all of the people I've spoken to were older and uh, they, you know, were using this as kind of like, along with their social security, as kind of the, the, the little returns they were getting on this were kind of paying for their for their care and that kind of thing. And some of them are a little panicky about the fact that they're not, they haven't been getting those uh those checks recently, and they've also not been able to get their principal out. And right. They're very and, nervous about that. Yeah, and what Roland told them was that this was going to be a fund that was investing in U.S. Treasury bonds. Right, and it was going to pay some decent returns. Maybe we don't really know, I guess, what kind of returns he promised, but we have seen some of the statements where 
he was claiming that it was paying returns on the order of nine or ten percent, which would be very, which would be high returns, which for, are hard to believe. I, yeah. I think, I think if you know, he was investing in bonds, if he was investing in which bonds, which we don't actually know that he was investing in bonds, I guess at this point, right? Right. The, the whole fact of the matter, I think, what drives what's going to be the the most important thing to focus on as we as we follow this story and it continues to develop is uh, to what extent did he tell these people that he was absolutely going to be investing in treasury bonds, and then to what extent. Was he investing them in other things? Because, right, or did he tell them the prospectus we've seen t- said treasury bonds, but is it possible that he verbally told people, you know what, we're going to do this other thing, and people said that's okay or yeah. what have and you? And from my, from my past stories and reporting, it uh, doesn't tend to matter what you tell these people. If it's in writing that you're going to be investing in treasury bonds, which so far is what we've seen, um, and then you start investing that money in real estate, uh, that tends to raise the ire of regulators, the SEC, FINRA, whoever right. ends up being the, reg- the the regulator that should be watching these farms. And uh, so let's talk about where things stand with. So he's, we know he's, there's a development he's involved in, in along the lakefront. That's kind of the status of that is unclear, but that may be where some of this money has been invested, sort of an ambitious lakefront development. Yeah, it's probably worth just talking a little bit about, about Roland because, um, he is a pretty well-known New Orleans businessman. He has invest. He's he was the person that has owned Tipitinas, which is a really famous uptown music club that he's owned for a number of years. After Katrina, he invested in the Orpheum Theater and had done about a thirteen million dollar renovation of that, and so kind of brought back that theater mm-hmm. to life in an area where we were still kind of waiting for a lot of these things to come back. And now the Sanger has come back, and now some other theaters right. have come back. And so he also has had this other developments around, but also this big lakefront project where he's planning to redevelop the the, the a portion of the lakefront uh, near the South Shore Harbor. Right. That doesn't seem to have really gotten off the ground at all. Yeah. Right, and we don't. So we don't know if any of the money is tied up in that, or we really just don't know. Right. And then the future of Tipitina's. What has he said about that? So there are some uh, reports right now, and we've heard from a couple of sources that he may be in talks to be selling Tipitina's. Um, it's not clear if that's going to go through. Um, one of the reports is that he's trying to sell that to the band Galactic. Um, we don't really know where that stands right now. And of course, the whole fact that all of these allegations have come out over the past few few days um, could could throw that into could that, some turmoil. Could that hinder a sale with these pending lawsuits? Or? I mean, if you were about to buy a music club or spend however much money, a few hundred thousand, a couple million dollars on a business... And you come to find out the guy you're buying it from potentially was lying to investors over the past years. I mean, I think I would take a pause, but yeah, it's really going to yeah. be up to the buyers. Okay. And any any uh, developments in the story that we're expecting in the next couple of weeks, or just something to keep an eye on? We're going to be we're continuing to report it. Um, it's probably worth saying, you know, uh, von Kurnikowski says this is all a misunderstanding. I think we talked about a li- that a little bit before and said that you know all of this is going to be worked out. He's known these people for 20, 30, you know, right. many years. Um, and so he did make those comments related to that. And he also has said that, you know, he's considering selling the, selling the club. We've heard from the other side that it's probably a lot more than considering. It looks like the deal is a lot further going on, um, or a lot further, uh, further down the line than that. Um, we are just, we're, we're continuing to dig. Um, Tipitina's is a really important found foundation and nonprofit. Yeah. It's also a really important music venue. Um, so there's a lot of strings to start pulling. And one of my sources has, has told me that, um, there's a lot of strings here, and when we start to pull this sweater, there might be a lot that falls apart, so we'll see. All right. Well, uh, keep an eye on that story, everyone.
Thanks for joining me, Jerry. Thanks for having me. All right. All right. Well, last but never least is Ian McNulty, <laughs> the Advocate's food writer. Ian, thanks for stopping by. Thanks. I appreciate you holding uh, the recording for me till I can get here and fill in uh, <laughs> the dramatic climax of today's episode. <laughs> the denouement. That's right. Uh, I guess that's French, but we want to talk about <laughs> German today. So, Ian, you had an interesting story about the Deutsches House and their their uh, the new opening of the new facility over in Bayou St. John. This has been kind of a long time in the making. Huh? Right, Gordon. Yeah, I think most people in New Orleans, if they know about Deutsches House, the big thing they know is Oktoberfest, which is their annual, you know, three weekend long celebration of German culture with the the chicken dance and the beer and the right. food and family friendly. It's really fun. It's just a rite of autumn for a lot of people. But the Deutsches House itself is um, a cultural organization that's been around for a long time. It's celebrating its 90th anniversary this year and uh, really interesting. I mean, it goes back to uh, sort of this resurgence of of pride and German identity between the wars and, and uh, goes Let's hope they to, don't get too carried away. Well, right? yeah, yeah. But it even goes back even further than yeah. that to the, to the 19th century when New Orleans was a major port for German immigration and it right. made this big impact in lots of different industries, including the beer industry. Right. Uh, <laughs> this cultural group has been very active through generations and generations, but they, they had a clubhouse on Galvez Street in Mid-City. Uh, for many, many years, and they that's where they hosted Oktoberfest, and that's where most people identified them with. They closed that. They lost it uh, to the hospital uh, construction in mm-hmm. that area. It was taken by the government. Uh, and for years, they've sort of been in limbo. They've been hosting their Oktoberfest in different spots, in Kenner for most of the time. Right. Uh, and now they have finally completed the new Deutsches House, and it's open on Bayou St. John, uh, right across from City Park, right across from the festival grounds over there. And let me tell you, the reason I was excited about this was, you know, they yeah, this historic uh, organization coming back home, finally completing a new a new home, getting a new, starting a new chapter. Uh, but for really for people who are interested in in you know the social scene around yeah. New Orleans, it really creates this different space. This is a clubhouse, right? But it's open to the public. It's always open, right? Uh, it's something they rent out for events, and also you can just drop by. Uh, they have a bar uh-huh. that's serving German beer to the tune of 20 different taps. They have a kitchen serving a lot of those Oktoberfest dishes that you get. All year round. All year round, yeah. Brats and the Flammkuchen, those, you know, those yeah, yeah. pizza-like tarts. Those are delicious. Yeah, yeah they are. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a family-friendly, all-ages kind of social space just to hang out and and significantly on the bayou, right? Bayou St. John has seen a bit of a rejuvenation right. in recent years. Um, and, you know, you see people out there enjoying the bayou in ways you just didn't see a generation ago. So it's coming back to life, but there aren't a lot of things around the bayou and especially right on the bayou. Right, a lot of restaurants or anything like right. that. Right, yeah. yeah. So they're hoping, what the Deutsches House folks are hoping is that when people go to festivals near their city park or jazz fest, when they hit the bayou on their kayaks and canoes, um, when they just explore that area there, they're going to make, you know, coming in for a stein of beer and a bronze right. with their family, with the kids in tow, uh, part of the trip. And for the club itself, it's very important. You know, this is one of those old line yeah. New Orleans social and cultural clubs that, uh, uh, you know, really looked like it was on the ropes because of what happened to them after Katrina, but yeah. is back now stronger than ever. A beautiful new spot. It looks like it looks really cool. And and so, as you said in the story, it's not a, it's not a bar and it's not a restaurant, but it's sort of like one of those things, yeah. right? But you could, I mean, it, it has alcohol and food, but sure. you just, it's, it's not exactly 
fitting into one of those boxes. Yeah, and, but it's something that I think New Orleans gets the gist of, right? Yeah. We're really good at that. Like, it's a place to hang out. Yeah, the thing about the parade grounds, you know, it, it, people are eating and drinking, having a good time. It's family-friendly. Not everything has to be sort of cut off into this is for adults, this is for the kiddos, whatever. But it's, you know, we, we've seen more places like that emerge lately with the, the rise of craft breweries yeah. and their tap rooms, which are typically family-friendly. Right. Uh, well, you know, before all that happened, the Deutsches House was like that. If yeah. you went down Galvez Street, uh, you know, and you had the courage to enter this sort of grim, uh, dark-looking old, uh, you know, industrial type of building, yeah. uh, go behind the doors, yeah, you'd, you'd find a, a nice little family-friendly setting on a tap room and all that good yeah. stuff. Uh, but here, it's right on the bayou, and that, that's the most exciting part is that it's so situ- so well-situated for New Orleans to come out and explore and enjoy it. I was struck by another thing in your story, which was that, the, that this kind of thing was, I always assumed these were started by Germans as a place to hang out with other Germans, but it was also partly sort of a front door to the city to introduce people to German culture, right? Yeah, and to look, sort of integrate Germans in a sense, rather than the opposite. Yeah, if you look back into the historical record, uh, you know, even in the 19th century, these German cultural organizations that were the forebearers of today's Deutsches Haus, uh, they wanted to pursue this German-American heritage that they had, but uh, they were very, very much wanted to appeal to Americans. They wanted to, to to be part of this new city that they had moved to from overseas. Beer gardens were one of the things that they did. They, they Germans were known things. for beer, and they sure. figured the Americans will come see this place, and they'll... It's hard to believe now, but there really wasn't much of a, of a beer industry or... or beer culture. Culture at all yeah. in New Orleans until these German immigrants kind of planted it here. And this is... At French and Spanish roots, right? right. Wine, 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 cognac, yeah. that sort of thing. The Sazerac cocktail, that's where that tradition came out of, right? right. But the brewing industry uh, was carried here by the Germans, and the, the early beer gardens were these social environments. And one of them was on Bayou St. John uh, mm-hmm. at present-day St. Peter's Street, just about a mile down the bayou from where you'll find Deutsch's house today. Okay. Well, uh, moving on, uh, the Saints are playing on Thanksgiving this year, of course. It's the second time ever that's happened and the first time that they've hosted a Thanksgiving game, right? Yeah, this is sort of unfamiliar turf for uh, for Saints fans because, you know, Football on Thanksgiving is a tradition, but Saints football is not. You're usually right. just watching the Cowboys. Couple teams and the, you don't care about. And yeah. the Lions. Yeah, and maybe, you know, if those teams are on a roll and you're watching them for potential playoff seedings this time of year, you know. But this, the, when the Saints are on, it's a completely different story. And, man, this really changes the is, holiday. Yeah, it's really shaping up to be different. So that's what we took a look at. And it was a really fun story to write, Gordon, because, you know, in this town, most people are at, at some level Saints fans. And when this game is on... It's intersecting with this holiday, but it's not a one or the other kind of thing. People are integrating uh, the game plan into their holiday plan. They're adjusting the timing. They're, uh, you'll see in the story, we, we talked to lots of different people who have different uh, ways of doing this. Some of them are taking Thanksgiving with them to the tailgate. That's it. Their yeah. Thanksgiving dinner is going to be on the corner of Loyola. And they by the Symphodome, you know. Others are... Are well, they're going to set up a TV next to the the Thanksgiving dinner spread, and and you know there's there's some interesting stories in there of of, of people who uh, are going to reveal their true hoodat craziness selves to their families, <laughs> perhaps for the first time. Right, right. We've heard of people coming in from out of town. Some people are going to have more guests than they planned because people want to come to the game. Uh, you know, game times are being uh, meal times. Excuse me, are being pushed. Uh, earlier in the day, but then you know, there's a little concern. Uh, you know, if you have that meal too early, are people going to pass out during the game? Going to have a sedate Superdome? <laughs> but 
the Houdats I talked to say that's not really a big concern to them because, of course, the Saints are playing the Falcons. So right. If you can't get up for that, With what the Saints at 9-1, and one, then yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think the fans will be plenty fired up. Yeah, I think it's going to be a great game. It's, uh, it's going to get a huge amount of TV exposure. In fact, uh, Emerald Agassi and Trombone Shorty are going to be part of the uh, the pregame show that NBC Sports is putting on. So instead of the usual intro, Carrie Underwood singing uh, the football song, it's going to be them like partying at Emerald's restaurant, playing some music, some original tunes, and, uh, and putting out a Thanksgiving spread of Saints and Falcons-themed dishes. So mm-hmm. it should be interesting. But New Orleans is going to get a lot of attention out of this. I think a lot of people are watching yeah, the yeah. 9-1 Saints around the country. So... Um, you know, it, it, it's a it's a holiday for family and thankfulness and coming together, and uh, it's also going to be a holiday for stuffing the composition <laughs> and sacks and hoodats, and it's going to be a great Thursday. Let's hope. All right. Well, uh, happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and thanks for joining me, Ian. Okay. Anytime, Gordon. All right. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors, with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.